12 this morning. We're also going to... of Jesus. This is not in the Bible, but this is what they meant by the Sabbath to them. To them. It was decided that if you lost your leg and had a wooden leg, you would not use that on the Sabbath. If you had false teeth, you could not wear them on the Sabbath. You could not carry anything in your hand, but you could carry something with the back of your hand, with your foot, your elbow, or in your ear, on your hair, on the hem of your shirt, or on a shoe or sandal. You could not tie a knot on a Sabbath, but a woman could tie a knot in her girdle. So the way they would get around it is they would hook a bucket of water to a woman's girdle and then lower that down into the well to get water. They had all these rules. It just goes on and on. There was another one that if you uh, sewed for a living, that you were not allowed to carry a needle in your pocket hours before the Sabbath would start just in case you would forget. These are not in the Bible. See, and the point of today's message, very simply, is this. These rules, these regulations, this is not of the Lord. God just wants grace and mercy. And what happens is when you see these rules and these regulations, this is not a picture of God. It's not. If you really look at the life of Jesus, he was breaking rules all the time. Do you realize that? He's touching lepers. You're not supposed to touch the lepers. They're unclean. The woman with the issue of blood, she's unclean, shouldn't be around her. But Jesus realized what matters most is grace and mercy. Look at verse 7. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Keep that in the back of your mind as we go through this. As you had the religious leaders of the day setting up all these rules and regulations, taking something that is good and turning it into now a religious burden, Jesus says, no, I want you just to have a relationship with me. It's not about the rules. It's about me. Now, the Sabbath, once again, was supposed to be this day of rest. What a beautiful picture that is. Can you imagine the God of the universe telling you, take a day off? Take a day off. And I mean take a day off. I mean take a day off. Don't do anything. And this is not only that, but hey, every seven years, take a year off. Doesn't that sound amazing? Now, in the society we live in today, we've kind of lost that, haven't we? So what happens is you may be working seven days a week and you wonder why you're worn out mentally, spiritually, and physically. Now, some of you are required to work seven days a week, and that's a tough, tough gig to have. But a lot of times what I see the world doing is they dangle that carrot of overtime in front of us and say, hey, take it. It's going to be worth it, that time and a half, that double time, etc. Your body needs the Sabbath. Your spirit needs the Sabbath. You need that time to mentally rest. When is the Sabbath? Well, for everybody, it is a bit different. Of the original Ten Commandments, only honor the Sabbath is not repeated in the New Testament. In fact, in Colossians 2, verse 16, it says, let no one judge you in Sabbaths. Now, some people still feel that they should honor that by not doing anything on Sunday. And that's your choice. That's a personal preference. My response back to that always is, I work on Sundays. I'm sorry, it just doesn't work for me to take Sundays off. For me, my Sabbath is Friday. That's family day. 
And we look forward to family day. And that's what we do. It's the day of rest and recuperation, etc. That's my Sabbath for the week. The point is that God says in his infinite wisdom, you need that day. You need that day to spend with the family. You need that day just to rest and regroup and keep your focus on me. I heard a teaching years ago that really helped me a lot. Because there's this mental mindset of if you're really a good worker, but you don't take it, you just keep working, you just keep moving. And he said, the teacher said, how arrogant of us, how prideful of us to think that we don't need a Sabbath when God ordained it. Now remember, the Bible makes it clear. The Sabbath was created for man. God was not exhausted from six days of creation. He said, I have to take a day off. No, he designed this for us as an example for us. And that's what you see here. So enjoy that break. Enjoy that family time. Enjoy that day of ministry. That day to say, Lord, I just want to enjoy this time with you and my family that you have blessed me with and be refreshed and be regrouped. But what happened was they added all these extra burdens on it for them that they couldn't. What were they doing wrong? Well, they were walking through the wheat field. They were hungry. Picked up a couple of heads of wheat. You can imagine what they did. Took, kind of took the chaff off, threw the seeds in their mouth. Well, according to the rules of the day, once again, not according to the Bible, they just harvested grain. They just harvested grain. Now, this was allowed, though. In Deuteronomy 23, if you were walking through a farmer's field, you were allowed to take heads of grain and eat, even if it wasn't yours. If you're walking through a neighbor's vineyard, you were allowed to pluck grapes off and eat as you're walking through. That's the system that God set up. This system of we're going to help each other and take care of each other. Now, there are certain rules with it. If you're walking through your neighbor's vineyard, according to Deuteronomy 23, you can't stop and take a bucket with you. You can't. You walk through, and as you walk through, you grab what you can. Now, you can't just walk through, turn around, walk through, turn around, walk through. No, no, no. You walk through and grab it. These guys are doing what the law said was okay. They're walking through. They're hungry. They grab a thing of wheat head, and they just kind of rub it off, throw it in their mouth. No, you're breaking rules. Whose rules? Man's rules. God says, Jesus says, it's not about the rules, it's about me. And to do this, he proves this point. Verse 3, he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Did I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple? But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You have not condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. See, verse 8 is our key right there. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He's the primary point. That's all that matters is keep your focus on Him. Hebrews makes this clear. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, has to be Christ. It's not rules. It's not regulations. It has to be Christ. And to make this point clear, he gives a couple examples. The first example, verse 3 and 4. He says, what about David? See, the story was in 1 Samuel 21. David's on the run from Saul. Saul was the king. Saul did not like David. He knew that David was going to be the next king. So Saul was trying to kill David. David's on the run. And as they're on the run, they come across the tabernacle. His men are hungry. They have no food. He goes up to the priest and says, do you have any food for us? The priest says, the only food I have is the showbread. The showbread are 12 loaves that are baked weekly. And they're put on the table there in the tabernacle. And at the end of the week, that bread can then be ate by the priests and Levites. It's considered holy bread, consecrated bread. The 12 loaves obviously represent the 12 uh, tribes there. So the bread can only be ate by the priests and Levites. And so what happens is, the priest says, the only bread I have is the showbread. You're not allowed to eat that. Guess what David did? He ate the showbread. David broke the rules. The priest broke the rules. Just like Jesus broke the rules by touching the leper. See, the whole point is doing good trumps any rules that you may have. 
always do good. That is the point. Look at verse 12, and we'll get to it in a little bit. Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Good trumps rules. Now, let me make this point perfectly clear. When I say good trumps rules, what type of rules are we talking about? I'm not talking about morality in the Bible, those type of biblical doctrine rules. We're talking about the rules that sometimes we make up. The rules that we try to say, this is what we're going to do. It's always best to do good to trump the rules. Eat the showbread. Now, that's a little phrase that Dawn and I use in our house a lot. And, and I'm not making a joke when I say this. I want to make this clear. The longer I walk with the Lord, the more I understand grace and mercy. And I just love it. I just love grace and mercy. The longer Dawn walks with the Lord, she's becoming a Pharisee. Now, that's her own thing. And I'm not, and I'm not like I said, I'm not trying to make a joke. I'm just saying I noticed that. 20 years together, it's like, oh, I love grace. She's like, I love rules. Now, it's a nice combo. We got this little saying in her house. When something pops up and there's a rule that's not followed, there's a rule that's been broken. And not maybe a rule out of disobedience. It's not being broken because they were being bad. But the situation, it just didn't work out to follow the rules. And that bothers dawn. Dot every I, cross every T. What do we say? Hey, David ate the showbread. David ate the showbread. If you're the type of person that you want every I dot and every T cross, you hate the fact that David ate the showbread. And you hate the fact that Jesus just said it was okay that he ate the showbread. Because the rule is there. That's a good rule. Only the priest, only the Levites. That's the rule. Leviticus 24. Yeah, but David's starving. Well, but the rule says you can't eat the showbread. Yeah, but David's starving. Good always trumps the rules. What about the next one? Verse 5. Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? According to the book of Numbers, you had to do double the daily sacrifices on the Sabbath. The busiest day of the week for the priest is the Sabbath. When no one else is doing anything, they're working double time. Jesus says right there in verse 5, they're blameless. So Pharisees and Sadducees, you're making all these rules. Hey, guess what? David ate the showbread. Hey, guess what? The priests and the, and the Sabbath, they're out there working. See, here's the problem, people. Verse 6, he says, Yet I say to you, in this place there is one greater than the temple. He says, Guys, you got your rules and your regulations that you're focusing on the temple. But me, right here, he goes, I trump the temple. You have a relationship with me more than you have a relationship with the rules and the regulations. That's the goal. I'm greater than the temple. Now, we don't struggle with that today, right? We don't struggle with Sabbath. Every now and then it pops up where someone says, well, I feel we shouldn't or should. Most part, it doesn't an issue. But what we struggle with today is we have our other forms of religious rules. That I'm fine because I got baptized. I'm fine because I got confirmed. I'm fine because I went through catechism or something like that. Now listen, I'm not picking on baptism, confirmation, or catechism. Those serve their purpose and those can be good. But if you start trusting in those things for salvation, you're in a big, bad mistake. Because those are rules. Well, they're good. Yeah, there may be some good that comes out of it. But Jesus is saying right here in verse 6, he goes, I'm greater than the temple. And what happens is when we focus so much on the rules, we lose the relationship. We lose touching the lepers. Well, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way it has to be. Okay, there may be some good in that. But it's always about the relationship with Christ. So verse 6, the relationship is more important than the rules. Verse 7, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Mercy and not rules. 
We just got done doing Matthew 5 through 7. He doesn't want your outward obedience. He doesn't want your outward religion. He doesn't want you fasting just to get attention. He doesn't want you praying just to get attention. He doesn't want you out there giving just to get attention. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. And what he's saying right here in verse 7, I want mercy and not sacrifice. Mercy. Mercy is one of those words that when you see it, you understand it. It is really hard to define with words, I think. The best definition I found for mercy is unmerited kindness. That you're just nice to the person. You're showing them mercy, not because they've done anything to deserve it, but because you just choose to do it. And and that's really a picture of mercy from God. There's nothing I have done to earn or deserve it, and he still does it. That's mercy. That's the beauty of it. And what a beautiful picture that is. And what God is saying here, Jesus is saying in verse 7, he goes, I want mercy, guys, not sacrifice. Think of all the Old Testament examples of that. Psalm 51, the great psalm that David wrote after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He basically says, listen, you don't want my burnt offerings. He goes, you want my heart. What happened with Samuel and Saul in 1 Samuel 15? 1 Samuel 15 says that Saul was told to destroy everything in the Amalekites. But Saul kept back a lot of the good stuff. Why? Because Saul said, he goes, I'm just going to sacrifice this to God. And Saul shows up and tells, excuse me, Samuel shows up and tells Saul, listen, God just wants obedience. You can follow all the rules and not have a relationship with Christ. You can follow all the rules and look great on the outside, but your heart be far from him. He wants mercy and not sacrifice. Don showed me a verse this week. It just blew my mind. I'm sure I've read it before. I've probably taught it before. And it's just a simple verse that says, Mercy triumphs judgment. Man, that makes you stop and think. Because we live in a world where, to be honest, we like judgment. I'm okay with mercy if it deals with me. But when mercy is for other people, sometimes I'm not a big fan of that. I kind of like judgment. What Jesus is trying to say here is, listen, I'm always going to lean on the side of mercy and grace. Always. It's about a relationship, not the rules. It's about mercy, not obedience and sacrifice. Why? Because verse 8, Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He goes, I'm the primary focus. Not the rules, not the regulations, but me. Now, it builds up to this. Look at verse 9. Now, when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. Stop there real quick. I don't know for the wording for sure on that, but look at verse 9. Isn't it fascinating? Whose synagogue did they go into? Their synagogue. It wasn't Jesus' synagogue. I don't know if he was really even welcome. Makes you kind of stop and think a lot of times about some churches, doesn't it? I'm not saying that to be mean or to be rude. Is, is that Jesus' church? See, he goes into their synagogue. Verse 10, And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? I find verse 10 fascinating. They know he can heal. They know, is it lawful? They know that Jesus can heal. Isn't it crazy that 2,000 years later, us and all of our wisdom debate the miracles of Jesus? Did he really raise Lazarus from the dead? Did he really walk on water? Did he really cast out demons? Did the blind really see? We sit here and debate it. If you go back 2,000 years ago, the people that hated Christ could not deny the fact that he did miracles. They didn't deny the fact that Lazarus was dead and rose again. In fact, they hated it so much they wanted to kill Lazarus, if you remember correctly. So right here in verse 10, they're not doubting whether he can do the miracle. They know he can do the miracle. Are you going to do it? See, it's wrong to heal somebody on the Sabbath. Now, once again, that's not a biblical rule. That's a rule that they made. 
If you and I were out working together, well, I'd say we can't work on the Sabbath. If I got hurt on the Sabbath, got hurt on the Sabbath, and I have a horrible arm injury, I am bleeding to death, the most you could do is put a tourniquet around my arm and wait and wait till the next day to help me get better. Because that's the rule. You can't heal on the Sabbath. Those are the rules they have. Remember, it's not about the rules. It's about the relationship. So what does he do? Verse 11, then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if he falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? How much more value than is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. What Jesus says is, listen, if you have a sheep that falls into a pit, you're going to break every rule you can on the Sabbath to save that sheep. But yet, if there's a human being, you won't. Let me just make this point very clear. They were valuing the life of an animal more than a man. Do you realize that has not changed in 2,000 years? People will value the life of an animal more than the man that is created in God's image. So often we think of all these sins that we deal with in a society today, they're new. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. 2,000 years ago, the life of a sheep was worth more than the life of a man on the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, guys, get your priorities straight here. Verse 12, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Good trumps rules. Good trumps regulations. That's what he's trying to say. Let me stress one more time. We're not talking the rules of doctrine and morality. We're talking about these religious rules and regulations that they have set up. Good trumps the rules. You will always do right by doing good. Now the question is, what's the definition of good? Your definition of good may be different than my definition of good. That's why we always have to look at God's definition of good. God's not going to ask us to do something and then not tell us how to do it. You want to know God's definition of good? Let's go to Micah, please. Micah 6. Micah chapter 6. Micah is between Jonah and Nahum. If you see a big fish, take a right. Micah 6. What is God's definition of good? Because if we're going to say good trumps rules and regulations, then I want to do what's right. I want to do what's good. So God, what is your definition of good? Micah 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? So here's our definition of good. God has shown us what is good. He gives us three things. What does the Lord require of you? The first one, but to do justly. Some of your translations just come out and say to do what is right. Okay, well, how do I know what's right? I was thinking about this during the 830 when I was teaching. About how many times over the years people have come up to me and said, I got a situation and I don't know what to do. Okay, so we sit down and we talk. And they explain the situation. They're like, Pastor, I don't know what to do. And here's my great follow-up counseling question. What do you think you should do? I don't know. And I would say, no, 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 stop for a second. What, what do you think you should do? I think almost every single time, I can't think of an example off the top of my head right now, where they did not choose the right thing. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us to point us in the right direction. We know what the right thing to do is. Most of the time when someone comes in and says, I don't know what to do, what they're really saying is, I probably know what I should do and I really just don't want to do it. But we know what we're supposed to do. 
We're supposed to do good. We're supposed to do justly. That word there for to do justly is a really fascinating word. It means to do justice. It means to judge. It basically means to step back, analyze the situation as an impartial judge, and say it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I want. What does God say is right in this situation? And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take away every thought and feeling and emotion I have and just say, Lord, I want to do what's right. That's a hard thing to do because every decision I make is swayed by me and what I think and what I want. I've been telling you lately how difficult the Lord has really been laying on my heart lately here, this idea of dying to oneself. And I've shared with you this phrase that I've been saying a lot to Dawn. I just want to die. And I don't mean that a physical, like suicidal thought. I just want this James to just disappear. But every time you think you get close to doing it, Wow, it's hard to do. I just want to do what's right. But there's always me that wants to do what I want. What is good? To do justly. To do what God says is right. The next one, to love mercy. We've already talked about mercy. God loves mercy. Unmerited kindness to someone. They haven't earned it. They haven't deserved it. But we still showed them mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. The last one, a humbleness. It's not about you. It's about the Lord. I'm telling you right now, if you do those three things, Lord, I want to do what's right in your eyes. I want to show mercy to the people I run into. And I want to walk in a humbleness. You're going to do good. Because that's the simplicity of this. You're going to do good to do what's right, to show mercy, and to walk humbly. If you're facing a situation right now and you're like, I don't know what's right, I bet you if you take those three parameters and put it in that situation, you'll probably have a pretty clear picture of what you're supposed to do. And when you do that, you'll really be fulfilling what Christ wants. Back to verse 12 of Matthew 12. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Good trumps rules and regulations. What's the right thing to do? The right thing to do is to heal this man. Verse 13. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other. And the Pharisees went on and plotted against him how they might destroy him. That's where it starts to turn. Jesus just broke too many rules. You can't do this to the Sabbath. What are you doing here? And you just start to see this hatred starting to come up. If you know somebody who's legalistic, you can know how quickly they can get angry when their rules and regulations aren't followed. And that anger can get so severe so quickly because it is so important to them that every rule be followed perfectly according to their interpretation of the rule. And when something comes in and we say, hey, let the good trump the rules, that's hard for them. And they see the anger. They see the frustration of it because they want their path followed. Sometimes Jesus comes in and says, hey, touch the leper. I can't. Oh, yeah, you can't. Hey, let David eat the showbread. Nope, not allowed. We're going to. Don't work on the Sabbath. Well, the priests get to. Rules trump judgment. Go ahead, verse 15. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known. It's kind of like Jesus almost says right here, hey guys, free healing today, just to kind of make the point come across. He heals them all. He withdraws. I I think there's a lot in that verse there, verse 15. He withdrew. He didn't keep the debate going. He knew there wasn't any reason to. He's there to come to the cross. That's what he's there to do. That's his whole goal. That's his whole focus. He's not going to force anything. He gets away. He warns them not to make him known. Verse 16, it's not that he's saying, don't tell people about me. But he's saying, hey, listen, the point right now is we're going to the cross. The point right now is not to build the kingdom. The point right now is not to make me your king. The point right now is not to elevate me on this earth. 
The point is that I want you to know who I am so when the death of the cross comes, you can understand what it meant to be the Messiah. Verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. This is out of Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved and whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out. He will not, excuse me, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. Till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. Look at this prophecy of Jesus. Now, let's really break this down. Look at verse 18. Look at how it describes Christ. First off, number one, servant. Servant. It says in the book of Mark that the Son of Man came to not be served, but to serve. We've lost that mentality, haven't we? So much of what we do is about us, what makes me feel good, and what affirms me and elevates me. As I mentioned earlier, dying to oneself is so difficult because you always want it to be about you. Boy, that's tough to do. That's so tough to do. And Jesus set the example of servanthood to say it's not about you. It's about me. Look, he was chosen. He's the Messiah. The Spirit is upon him. There's a calling there. He's anointed. Well, what's he going to do with this? Verse 19, he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. What a fascinating verse. Jesus doesn't have to yell to get his point across. He doesn't have to scream to get his point across. Have you ever run into that person that they feel the louder they are, the more intimidating they are? You ever run into that person where if you're not listening to me, I'll just keep raising my voice to get my point across. Then I'll start screaming and slamming doors and yelling and hitting and all that other type of stuff. Because that will make you listen to me. No. Jesus right here, he doesn't have to yell it. He doesn't have to scream it. He doesn't have to. Does that mean he never raised his voice? I don't know, when he cleared the temple, I'm sure he probably got a little loud. But was it anger? No. Frustration, maybe. But he wasn't losing that self-control of the quarreling and the crying out. He didn't have to scream to get his point across. Dawn read a book on parenting years ago, and it really, really hit us. This idea that if you as a parent have to yell your rules and regulations, and you have to yell, obey me, there's probably a little bit of breakdown in the system. Now, what I try to tell my boys this. If I yell, it's because I have to be louder than you guys. Because you guys are very loud. Now, there are some times where I yell. And I have to go back and I have to stop and I say, I shouldn't have done that. shouldn't have to yell like that to get my point across. shouldn't have to go to that harshness. That You know, the Bible makes it very clear that there's soft words and there's hard words. We don't need to go to the hard, harsh words. Because according to Christ right here in verse 19, we don't have to quarrel. We don't have to cry out. People don't have to hear our voice in the streets. We should be able just to calmly, clearly say, this is what's going on. Let's talk this through. Verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. A bruised reed, that's a very fragile plant. So this bruised reed is almost completely broken. Jesus isn't going to come and just trample it down. The smoking flax that can't light, it's just smoking. It brings no heat. It brings no light. If anything, it's just smoking and it gets in your eyes. He's not going to quench it. He's going to try to get the fire going. Do you realize what it's saying there in verse 20? Some of you are bruised reeds. You have been bruised by the world. You're broken. The other day, Rich and I were talking about something, and I made the comment about, uh, you know, the people having a lot of baggage. And Richard goes, it's not baggage, it's wreckage. They just carry wreckage around with them. They're a bruised reed. Jesus says, I'm not going to break you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to build you up. Some of you came in this morning, and you were bruised. 
It is a difficult day, a difficult week, month, year, life, fill in the blank. Jesus says, I'm here. Somehow in Christianity, we've reached the point of we like to break reeds. I don't know where that came from. They're bruised. Let's love them. Smoking flax. You're not on fire enough for the Lord. I don't see any heat. I don't see any fire. I just see smoke. So what do we do? Get on fire for the Lord. That doesn't really work. Jesus says, you know what? I'm not going to quench that. you got something there. Let's work with this. That's why I love the theme of what we're talking about with VBS this year, this idea of being a work in progress. Sometimes I'm bruised. The Lord wants to help me. Sometimes I'm smoking. I'm not really, I'm not really smoking. But sometimes I'm smoking, not, not on fire for the Lord. Lord, help us there. He wants to take us deeper. Now, the question is, do you want to go deeper? That's really what it comes down to. Where's your heart? Do you want to go deeper? He's not going to make you go deeper. He'll take you as deep as you want to go. And how are you going to go deeper? It's not by rules. It's not by regulations. It's going to be by a relationship with him. Because the rules and regulations, okay, fine. So you're just like the Pharisees and Sadducees now. you got it all figured out. But it's the relationship he wants. See, I remember years ago when I finally started to realize this. There's nothing I can do to make God love me more than what he loves me right now. I could spend all day in prayer, all day reading the Bible, all day witnessing and serving. And he will not love me more than what he loves me right now. He won't. Now, there's good in the reading and the praying and the serving. There's good in that. But that would not elevate me in his love. I don't have to do that. Have you ever realized that? You don't have to do devotions. You don't have to pray. You don't have to serve. And you don't even have to show up on a Sunday. Because if you're doing it out of rules and regulations, good can still come out of it because God's word doesn't return void and the spirit can still move. But ultimately, if you're doing it because you have to, it's not the heart that he's looking for. As you read through the Old Testament, he makes it abundantly clear. You're just offering up sacrifices to offer up sacrifice. He goes, that doesn't mean anything. He goes, I want, your, I want mercy, not sacrifice. I want obedience, not sacrifice. You choose to get up in the morning and read. You choose to come to church. You choose to pray. You choose to go deeper in your walk with the Lord. I would like you to stop at this moment and really ask yourself that. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it the rules? Is it the regulations? Is it the religious hoops? You're never going to be as fruitful as you can be. Once you really stop and just realize, I love him. And that he loves me. And so I want to. I want to listen to him. I want to read about him. I want to study him. And all of a sudden, there's this freedom in doing it. I've been doing a big study on this word doulos, this bond servant. What's that mean? And it means to willfully offer up yourself to the Lord as a slave. Not a have to. You willfully do it. Because there's a freedom. Now, follow my logic. There's a freedom in enslaving yourself to Christ. Think about that for a second. There's a freedom when you stop and you say, Lord, I am just completely yours. Completely yours. I'm not going to worry about my marriage anymore. I'm not going to worry about my kids. I'm not going to worry about this or that because I serve the godly, loving master who will always take care of me. And in his sovereignty, if something comes into my life, he's going to use it for good. He'll lead me and guide me into all paths and all truths. So when I get up in the morning and read and pray, I'm just talking to my loving master. And I said, Lord, I'm yours today. What do you want me to do? What a beautiful picture that is. I have noticed in my life when I do that, things just go better. The problem is when I get up and instead of talking to my loving master... I treat God like my coworker. 
I'll try to get to it today, God, if I can, but I've got a big list today of things to do. All of a sudden, my day doesn't go the way I want my day to go. It's his. You're just the servant. You're just the slave. Free yourself by giving yourself completely over to him. Walk in mercy. Walk in grace. You're the bruised reed. He's not going to break you. You're the smoking flax. He's not going to quench you. You may have nothing to bring to the table. And he says, I still love you. You may be the weakest of all Christians. And you say, James, there is no on fire for the Lord right now. There's no walk with the Lord. You're even lucky to see me here. Hey, he says, I'll work with that. Isn't that a beautiful thing? He goes, I'll work with that. What a beautiful picture of love, grace, and mercy it is. It's not about the rules. It's not about the, relation, about the regulations. It's about the relationship. He wants mercy. That's what he wants. He wants to show you mercy. He wants to show you grace. He wants that relationship with you. And when you really stop and you think about that, all of a sudden it's like, wow, Lord, I get it now. I get what it means to love you. And as I love you and serve you, wow, whatever comes my way comes my way. And Lord, help me to love it. Hey, let's pray this into our lives. Worship team, if you want to come forward here, let's pray this into our lives.